We're going to be continuing in our series of messages called A Little More Like Jesus, A Little Less Like Me. And we're looking at Luke chapter 14 today. Luke chapter 14. If you have a Bible with you or you have your phone with the Bible on it or any other device, I encourage you to follow along with me as I read it. Or if you just want to listen along, I encourage you to do that as well. Luke chapter 14. We're going to start in the first verse, but then I'm going to skip down to verse 7. Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being being carefully watched. And then skip down to verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, Give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, Friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all... But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field, and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads, the country lanes, and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Would you join me in prayer as we continue? Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it reveals to us through the life of your son, Jesus Father, this morning as we process the words that we just read and that we heard, we ask that you would translate that from the words that we just heard and and read to the everyday details of our life. That they wouldn't just be words on the page, but they would be your power pulling and tugging at us of how you're calling us to be in the world in which we live today. Father, we ask this by the power of your spirit and through your son, Jesus. Amen. In western New York the past few weeks, the local news and talk shows and such have had a lot of attention on the future stadium of the Bills. A lot of the discussion that revolves around the location of a professional sports team is what it offers to people on both sides of 
the deal, both to the city and to the team. And from there, the conversation seemed to revolve around what each side will get in exchange for their side of the deal. In this case, the Bills get a new stadium. They likely get most of the stadium paid for with public funding. At least it seems that way. They get the prestige from the NFL execs that come with having a new stadium. For our area, for Western New York, this area gets a new stadium with all of its fan amenities. It gets a venue to possibly host other big acts like big music acts possibly. It likely gets a tourism boost from people around the country or maybe even the world. It looks good for the government officials who can be a part of keeping the team in Western New York and part of delivering a state-of-the-art facility to this area. If it's the city of Buffalo where the stadium gets put, the city gets the notoriety of having a state-of-the-art facility in its infrastructure. It likely gets other infrastructure upgrades to accommodate that stadium. It also, according to some, can provide an economic boost to the city's renaissance. As much as the situation with the Bill Stadium is in dollar amounts that are far and above what our daily interaction with money is, I'm guessing most of our daily spending isn't in the billions of dollars. So, like, we can't even fathom, like, dealing with money like that, probably. We get the dynamic that is happening between the team and the city or the county. We get the deal and and how it takes place. None of us really like it. It looks very dirty and all that kind of stuff, but we get it. It's how life tends to work. But... Similarly, in our own lives, the last time you probably booked a hotel room, you likely went through a similar process. You probably did quite a bit of research to find a hotel that offered you the most amenities for the best price. We do the same thing when we purchase our airline flights or vehicles or a house or a vacation rental. We look for the most amenities for the best price. We do the same thing with our decisions about many other functions. We ask, what do I get in return for my investment in this activity? Do I get experience, fun, money? You fill in the blank. In many ways, like uh, with the hotel example, we've been conditioned to think of hospitable accommodation in transactional terms. In other words, hospitality comes with a price. We probably don't think about it that way, but when you start thinking about how it plays out, you see that there's generally a transaction that happens. And if we can't meet the price or the expectations, then we have, a, we have no shot of experiencing the hospitality, like the hospitality of a hotel or something like that. Hospitality seems like it's a transactional experience. But Jesus' words in Luke 14 call us to shift our perception of hospitality from transactional to sacrificial without expecting anything in return. Because this is the disposition that we see Jesus have toward others. In Luke 14, Jesus is calling us to be a little more hospitable like him and a little less transactional like us. A little more hospitable like Jesus, a little less transactional like me. In many people's favorite Christmas movie, Elf, Buddy the Elf's dad is a children's book writer, publisher... He makes children's books, essentially. And when he and his team struggle to get a good book idea together, one person on the team suggests they bring in Miles Finch, who is supposed to be a touted idea person for children's books. The team move forward with the idea to reach out to Miles Finch, and when they ask him over the phone if he could come the next day, he responds in this way. I'll give you five hours tomorrow, not a minute more. I'd like a black S500, that's a Mercedes if you don't know, to receive me at the airport. 
I need the interior of that car to be 71 degrees exactly. To which the team replies, we can do that. While this phone call is happening, Buddy's dad is made aware of Buddy having a party in the mailroom of the Empire State Building. And the secretary interrupts the Miles Finch call to tell Buddy's dad that this is happening. And after Miles Finch gets irritated at the interruption on the phone call, he begins balking at coming and it says, that's it, I'm gone. The call pauses after a gasp of fear by the team. Then Miles speaks and says, I'll be there tomorrow, 71 degrees. Then the call ends. In this situation, the story writing team will go to great lengths to fulfill Miles Finch's wants. When Miles shows up, this is not hospitality that they are offering to him. Because the car, the specific temperature, and anything else that Miles Finch wants is the cost that needs to be paid to host him. Also, the writing team is not seeking to be hospitable. That's not their motivation here. They are only looking to host someone who can do something for them in return. This is transactional on their end of the relationship as well. The entire situation is a transactional moment. It's not the hospitality that Jesus is describing in Luke 14. But this demeanor is vastly different from the demeanor that Jesus describes in the two stories that he tells in Luke 14. Let's look first at the first story. In verses 7 through 11 of Luke 14, Jesus first notes that the guests of the story are not to assume that their seat is arranged because of who they are or what they have accomplished. Although that seems to be the the position that the guests are coming from, like, look who I am, I already know I get to sit in this seat. Like, there's something I have done or who I am who already deserves being in this place. And Jesus is saying, you already need to question that assumption to start with. But beyond the guests... In verses uh, 12 through 14, Jesus addresses the situation from the perspective of the host as well. Similarly, in the parable that is found in verses 15 to 24, he does the same thing. Jesus notes that the hosts of both situations default to inviting friends, family, and wealthy people. And in stating this, Jesus exposes the heart of the host of being, of, of having people over for the purpose of gaining something from these groups of people. Now, it may not be to get money in return or something like that, but they are probably inviting those specific people because they know they get things like trust, care, compassion, forgiveness, belonging, provision, blessing, by having those kinds of people over. In and of themselves, these are not bad or evil realities that they are wanting, but when they are the motivation for a relationship with another, it impacts our very character, our very soul, and how we treat others. It also impacts how we relate to God. Ultimately, looking for these realities in others causes us not to ultimately look for these realities in and through God, but through other people, through other created entities. The motivation for why we do things does matter. It may be easy to think that this situation doesn't take place in our own life, but it might be closer to our life when we realize that, at, I mean, when we look at a surface level of our own life, we, we're probably like, eh, I don't know if I'm that way. But I think when you look deeper at like why we do the things that we do, we probably can connect more with the situation than we might expect. I mean, it's a, probably a familiar feeling to many of us. Someone has us over for dinner and we feel like we have to return the gesture in kind. Someone buys us a gift and we feel like we have to return the gesture in kind. Someone helps us with a home project and we feel like we have to return that gesture in some form or fashion. 
On one hand, it's not a bad thing to not want to be entitled to another's grace or favor. Like, it's not a bad thing to, to not want to be an entitled person. Like, that's good. But the feeling that we can't just accept another person's generosity, the feeling that we have to pay that back, is likely a result of being shaped and formed by the transactional culture that we're surrounded by each and every day. We likely see this in our own relationships. Who do we easily default to hosting in our homes? Relatives and friends and those who can help us out, right? The people we're comfortable with. The people we know we already kind of gained something from the get-go. These are likely the relationships through which we know that we gained something back. But notice in our Bible passage today, Jesus essentially says that this way is not distinct to God's way of life. Is it good to care for your family and friends? Yes. But it's also assumed. <laughs> it's, it's like assumed in this passage that you would already care about them. And Jesus point blank says that in those relationships, we get paid back in kind by having those kind of people over to our home. It's reciprocal. It's transactional. But Jesus says that the unique Jesus-looking way is to invite those who are unable to return your hospitality in kind. People like the poor, the crippled, the people in less than ideal life situations. A little more hospitable like Jesus, a little less transactional like me. A little more hospitable like Jesus, a little less transactional like me. Many teams in the NFL this year have had a snap back to reality due to some humiliating defeats. The Kansas City Chiefs haven't been the top team that all probably thought they would be at the beginning of the year. The Bills have had their own struggles and don't have the record that many thought they would have by now. The Baltimore Ravens just lost to the two-win Miami Dolphins this past Thursday night, who many thought the Ravens would probably do well this entire year. And the surging Los Angeles Chargers had an abrupt loss to the downtrending Cleveland Browns a few weeks ago. Sports seem to bring out the arrogance in many athletes. The bragging and flaunting of like, we're just going to go undefeated or no one can stop us, that kind of attitude. Yet nothing like losing can bring a team to humility. It's not the preferred method for any of us, but it often quiets the arrogance. It often quiets the better than others mentality. In my reading and studying this past week, I ran across the etymology of the word humility. One of the roots of the word humility is the Latin term humus, which suggests the very earthiness by which humans exist. It harkens back to the very creatureliness of human life, that we all are creatures made from the dust of the ground that God has shaped and formed us into. Humility is very much about acknowledging and living into our creaturely created disposition in relation to God, that God is God and we are not, that God is over others and we are not. Humility is just as much about our disposition toward God as it is our disposition toward each other. That we are not better than others and others are not better than us. We are all dust compared to God. We are nothing without God. With that background in mind, humility is very much a disposition in which we acknowledge that our life is all based on being a recipient of God's grace from the very get-go. There is nothing we could do to make our lives come about in the first place. You did not say, I'm going to just exist. Like, that's not how any of us came here. Like, we did not decide that. Someone else graced us with that privilege. 
Our very life is nothing we could ever pay back or return in kind. We cannot create another person. We, we can give birth to another person, but even that we see there's struggles for a lot of people to even do that. We are all people who enter life at another's benefit or expense or sacrifice. In this case, we benefit from God's love to want to have us included in the world in which he created. We exist at the expense of God's love. And our continued eternal existence is due to the overflowing sacrificial love of God shown in the life of Jesus. To be able to participate in the hospitality that Jesus is calling us to in Luke 14, we have to first wrestle with our view of others. In verse 11 of Luke 14, Jesus points to humility as being the key to not elevating ourselves above others and assuming that we have a right to a place of honor above another. The same humility is needed for the host of verse 13, whom Jesus encourages to invite the poor, the crippled, those in less than ideal life situations. Humility is needed to get the, to the place where one is comfortable inviting those who are considered by the world to be poor and down and out. Without humility, we never get to a place of even being comfortable of inviting those kind of people into our life. A person can get there because they realize that their own, they have their own need in relation to God. We're all people in need. We are all poor and down and out in some form or fashion. The situation is just different for each of us. But God has invited all of us to partake in his life and goodness that no nothing that we did to earn or gain that and as adopted children of god uh, god wants to then extend his grace and through our lives as we as we have received his grace into ours modern societies have this ongoing debate about um, deciding what is the point at which a person is blessed or overly blessed when is someone considered rich when is someone considered poor what are the parameters that determine that You could probably almost look from one country to the other, and it probably looks different in different places. A lot of this has to do with the perspective that you're coming from. Some think they are blessed if they just have food to eat for that day, whereas others think they are blessed if they they can be self-sufficient in all things, whereas some think they are blessed if they have certain possessions or a certain amount of wealth or a certain amount of status. In verse 15 of Luke 14, someone comments to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. To which Jesus gives the parable of the great banquet. We know nothing of this guest that uh, made this comment. But the parable that Jesus gives hints that he reads the person's comment from the perspective of, I don't think that statement means what you think it means. Like you're saying it, but I don't know that you mean it how I'm going to mean it. Meaning, yes, blessed is the person who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. But the guests of the feast are not who you might expect to be there. And then Jesus goes on to tell the story about people showing up to or being invited to this banquet that we wouldn't expect to be invited to such an event. It's not the wealthy, the successful, and elite of society who are thought of first here. Because Jesus, in the story, takes them first and they don't want to come. And he's like, well, forget you and I'm going to invite these people instead. The feast here that's referenced, though, many scholars understand to be a reference to the prophecy of Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 8, which says, On this mountain the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. 
As well, many scholars understand Isaiah 25 and Luke 14 to be a foreshadowing of what is described by the Apostle John in his vision in Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, which says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the lamb. Sounds very similar to what Jesus said or what's said in Luke 14. And he added, these are the true words of God. According to Isaiah 25 and Revelation 19, those who will eat in the kingdom of God are those who are the disgraced. If you see, you can see that in Isaiah 25. It's not the, the people you would expect to be at such a banquet. It's the people who are not looked well upon in life. And it's those who are made clean in the kingdom of God, meaning people who needed fixed and repaired and restored, not the perfect people. Those eating in the kingdom of God are not those who have their life altogether on their own. It's not those who are perfect. It's not those who are wealthy. It's not those who appear to be blessed. No, it's those who find themselves in need. The poor, the crippled, and those who live on the outskirts of society, as you see described in the, the parable that Jesus talks about, where all these people are coming from the alleys and the streets and the far out edges of society. The people who are invited to this feast are those in need of restoration by God, which is all of us in some form or fashion. It's this disposition that God calls us to have in our interaction with others. Because we're all in need. We're not better than others, and they are not better than us. We are called to extend God's grace that He first bestowed on us who didn't earn it, and shower it on others who can't earn it either. The hospitality of God's grace is not transactional, but sacrificial. Like we see in the way that God made room for us in his life through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus, on the cross. A little more hospitable like Jesus, a little less transactional like me. A little more hospitable like Jesus, a little less transactional like me. You have likely heard or seen that our annual event to bless individuals with special needs is coming up on December 4th, which is a Saturday evening. We've traditionally called this event the Jesus Prom. And we're, but this year we're calling it the Christmas Gala as it's going to be Christmas themed. And the gist of this event is to participate in the call that Jesus gives us here in Luke 14. He gives those who participate in an introduction into interacting and serving and loving on those individuals who are often not given much attention throughout the year. While the history of this event has revolved around students 6th through 12th grades hosting and participating in the event, The event offers many opportunities for all ages to participate. Some of those ways are helping prep food in the kitchen or cleaning up after the event or clearing tables or picking up tables and chairs and decorations and sound equipment after. Or it can be helping guiding guests to pictures or to know where the bathroom is or know where drinks and desserts are. Another way this year that anyone can participate or a family can participate is by decorating a six-foot-by-six-foot 
uh, display area that you can theme in Christmas stuff. You can make it whatever kind of Christmas theme you want. I don't care if it's Bill's Christmas theme. It can be anything that's just Christmas themed. Um, but it's going to be so the, the guests that we have can walk through and just have uh, something to add some color to the event and um, something they can interact with as well. If you would like to participate in that, you can sign up to decorate a display um, at clarencecc.org. Um, or you can just plan to help in any way that I mentioned earlier. And you can contact me and I can help connect you uh, with that as well. Simply put, this Christmas gala is an opportunity for any of us to be further shaped into the calling that Jesus gives us here in Luke 14. To recognize our humble state as creaturely beings in need of God's grace. And then extending that same grace into the lives of others. It's not the only way to live out this passage, but it's a way to participate in how Jesus is calling us to be. A little more hospitable like Jesus, a little less less transactional like me. A little more hospitable like Jesus, a little less transactional like me. Whom in your life is God calling you to be a little more hospitable like Jesus? Who are the people in your life who are in need? Who are those on the outskirts of society who aren't given much attention? How might Jesus be calling you to extend his grace into their life like he's already extended into your life? Have you experienced the hospitality of Jesus yet? If you're just starting to realize the grace that Jesus has extended into your life, but you're not fully, you haven't yet fully entrusted your life to him, then I encourage you to consider fully surrendering to him through faith and baptism. You can find me or an elder or any other trusted person here, and they can help you take a step toward baptism. The hospitality of God's grace is not transactional, but it's sacrificial. A little more hospitable like Jesus, a little less transactional like me. A little more hospitable like Jesus, a little less transactional like me. Do you join me in prayer as we close? Father God, thank you for showering your grace on us like you have. That there's nothing we did to merit you showering your grace upon us. Father, help us to realize how much we have been recipients of your grace and that ultimately we are all people in need. Each and every day, each and every moment, we are people in need that if you don't shower your grace upon us, we cease to exist. We cease to live into the fullness of life that you have for us. Father, in our recognition of our need, help us to take in the grace that you give us, but then also to extend that to others who are in need as well. Father, show us who those people are in our life and how we can be present to them and extend your grace into their life. Lead us and guide us in however that needs to take place. It's by the power of your spirit and through your son Jesus that I pray this. Amen.